You know, why is probably one of the very first questions we learn to ask, but at some point in our lives, we just stop asking why, don't we? We just don't even have any curiosity anymore about things, about life, about the world, about others, about ourselves, even about God. We begin to accept that what we think we know is the fullness of reality, or at least enough reality, right? And so the why questions stop. And we end up missing the deeper meaning of so many things. In The Good and Beautiful God this week, James Bryan Smith asked one of the deepest and most impactful questions that has ever been asked. And in looking at the truth that God is self-sacrificing, the question comes up, and here's the question. Why did Jesus have to become a human being and suffer and die on the cross? Why didn't Jesus just teach us about how to live in a way that's pleasing to God? See, Jesus and his death are front and center of all Christian theology. And so we have to ask that question, why? And Philippians 2, 5 through 11 points us towards that answer. And so I wanna invite you to stand with me now as we read these verses. You can uh, follow along in your Bible or on the screen. It's Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Father, we thank you for this morning. We, we come to you seeking this truth, the reality that you are self-sacrificing, and God, seeking the deeper answer to the question, why did you have to become human and die on a cross? knowing that, God, when we find that answer, we'll find a deeper, deeper desire for you, a greater love for you, but we'll also experience a deeper love for us from you. And so, God, I ask that, that your truth would just rise to the surface of everything said here this morning, and anything that's not the fullness of it would just fall by the wayside. But, God, let your spirit open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears to the fullness of your truth this morning that we may love you more passionately. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So here's the thing. If we seek to love God passionately, we have to press into this question. And the answer comes from the truth that God is self-sacrificing. And that will lead us to fall more deeply in love with the God that Jesus knows. So the question is this, and we have to deal with this question. Why did Jesus have to become a human being and suffer and die on a cross? And so to find the deeper answer to this question, we have to start at the beginning, all the way back at the very beginning. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And in Genesis 1.31, God declares that all of creation is very good. It's the, the Hebrew phrase, mehod tov. 
It means abundantly good, good beyond good. That's how good all of creation was. But Adam and Eve brought complete corruption into God's abundantly good creation by breaking the one commandment that God gave them. By seeking to be like God, they ate from the one tree that they were told not to eat from. That act of disobedience is clear, right? If God says, don't do this, and you do that very thing, it's clearly disobedience. But the consequence of that disobedience isn't quite as clear. The consequence of that disobedience runs extremely deep into all of creation because it resulted in the corruption of everything God had made. So that act of disobedience is glaring, don't eat, and they ate. But the consequence runs very deep. All that God made was abundantly good because it served God perfectly. And it was now corrupted and twisted by humanity because Adam and Eve sought to place themselves on the same level as God. And now here's the thing. God could have simply said, you're forgiven. I declare you forgiven, and they would have been forgiven, which would have resolved the issue of the disobedience. They would have been restored to relationship with God in that moment, but that doesn't resolve the consequence of the disobedience. The disobedience resulted in the complete corruption of creation. So to forgive Adam and Eve would not undo the corruption. It would simply say, you're now forgiven in my eyes. I don't hold this against you. Listen to how James Bryan Smith says it. If we humans had merely broken a law, we could repent of it. If our problem were ignorance, then education would be our solution. But the human problem is much deeper than that. We are corrupt and depraved. It's like a disease that cannot be cured by willpower or knowledge. Complete corruption of creation brought both physical and spiritual death into the garden. We see that in Genesis 3.19, where God says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The result of this corruption that came in through the disobedience is now death. Everything that had been made to live forever was now dying, including humanity. At that point, all life began to move towards death. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart, Paul's saying here. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so when we face the truth of total corruption, there is absolutely nothing to do but lose heart. When we realize that we live in a state of total corruption, the only reasonable response is to become hopeless. We see that in the world, don't we? It's unraveling all the time. And then we see and we feel in this state of total corruption, we begin to see the body wasting away, right? That outer self is wasting away, whether it's in the form of disease or pain or simply joints that sound like a bowl of Rice Krispies when you move. Everything is saying this outer self is wasting away. But Paul says there's a reason not to lose heart. That there's a way to undergo renewal day by day. And so that brings us to this divine dilemma. Forgiving Adam and Eve wouldn't undo the corruption that came with the sin. See, forgiveness only blots out the sin. Forgiveness says, as if, 
you never sinned, but the corruption still remained. The forgiveness didn't undo the corruption. Creation, including all of us, needs something more than forgiveness. It needs total redemption. It needs to be remade into its uncorrupted and perfect state. Now that includes forgiveness, but it has to go further than just forgiveness. And so this is what Paul calls being renewed day by day in 2 Corinthians 4.16. So here's where we are, right? We've got creation that was made not only good, but mehod tov, abundantly good, good beyond good. And it became completely corrupted by the sin of Adam and Eve, who, in their desire to be like God, ate of the one tree that they were told not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by doing that, they were trying to grasp that equality with God. They wanted to be like God. And so we see this problem in Philippians 2, verses five and six. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's a very direct contrast to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not have the mind of Christ and they, not being in the form of God, thought that equality with God was something that they could grasp. So when Satan's temptation came and said, if you eat of it, you will be like God, they said, okay. Because I'm gonna grasp at equality with God. And so the corruption of creation comes through ones who are not God. Adam and Eve and you and I trying to grasp equality with God. To make ourselves our own moral and spiritual focal point instead of letting God live on the throne of all of life and all of creation. Do you see the corruption there? All of creation was made abundantly good because God was on the throne. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil said, no, we're gonna be like God. So they put themselves on the throne. And that's where the wasting away process that Paul says that we're all in began. That's where it started. That's where 2 Corinthians 4.16 now stands and says we are all wasting away. That is the divine dilemma. The divine dilemma which cannot be resolved by forgiveness alone. It needs redemption. Redemption is necessary to resolve the total corruption. So follow along with me because this is all gonna come back together with a nice bow on it at the end, I promise. But listen to this in Romans 8. Look at verses 19 and 23. This paints a picture of this divine dilemma. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see the total corruption that exists that Paul speaks of in Romans 8 here? It's the corruption of all creation, including us, and it'll be resolved by the revealing of the sons of God. If there are to be any sons of God, there must be a firstborn of God. There has to be a first son. And this firstborn of God must have the redeemed mind, not the fallen mind that Adam and Eve had, the fallen mind that Adam and Eve stepped into and brought into the world, which is what we see in Philippians 2.7, speaking of Jesus, but emptied himself by taking the form of, serv- of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus becoming a man, just as Adam and Eve were humans, taking on the corruption of all creation that Adam and Eve brought in. So now we're getting closer to the answer of the question. See, the twisted mindset of the fall is to serve ourselves, and it gets resolved in the self-sacrificing mindset of Christ that we see in Philippians 2.7. Emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And that leads us to Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedience in Christ now redeems the disobedience that Adam and Eve brought into the world through the self-sacrificing of God. And it moves us from the children of Adam and Eve to the firstborn of God the children of God, by both spiritual birthright and created right. So now, because of Christ, we who were in a corrupted state are being moved back in to the uncorrupted state with God. And that redeems both humanity and all creation. And that's exactly what Paul describes in Romans 8, 19 through 23. So do you see that the divine dilemma is the corruption of all of creation, including ourselves? The problem that came in is that through seeking to be like God, Adam and Eve put all of us in a position of being corrupted. And forgiveness can remove our sin and does remove our sin. Forgiveness allows God to look on us and say, you never sinned. In my eyes, you've never sinned. I've forgiven that. But forgiveness does not resolve the dilemma of the corruption of sin, the consequence of sin. Think of it this way. Imagine your house floods, and you call somebody, and they come in, and they get all the water out of your house. Is your house restored? No. If you've ever had a flood, you see this perfectly, right? You can get the water out, but it needs to be restored. It needs to be redeemed. Drywall and carpet need to be pulled out, and it needs to be made new. That's exactly what's going on here. That's exactly why Jesus came himself. 
Okay, but what about repentance? We have forgiveness, and, and that doesn't quite get us there, but what about repentance? Does repentance get us there? Repentance turns our hearts back to God, but that doesn't resolve the dilemma of corruption because we're already corrupted. And so I can repent, and, and even if I repent perfectly in this moment and never walk into that corruption for the rest of my life, I still have this history of corruption that needs to be redeemed. And so the futility of creation must be resolved if all of creation is going to be set free from this corruption. And the solution has to involve the removal of the corruption that came in through sin. Forgiveness is necessary, repentance is necessary, but the solution has to go to the very depths of the corruption that we now live in. And so what can solve this divine dilemma at the deepest levels? This divine dilemma of disobedience, creating a world, a creation that's now corrupted. Listen to what James Bryan Smith says about that question. It's not what, it's rather who that was needed to solve the problem. Only the word of God himself, who also in the beginning made all things out of nothing, could solve the human problem. And so we know from John 1 that Jesus is the word of God. And so here's the problem. Complete corruption of creation. The solution is the redemption of all creation. First in the children of God, those of us who have accepted Christ, and then in all of creation. And so here's the question. What redeems all of creation? Well, it's just as he said, it's not what, it's who. Do you see where all this is going? I hope you do. We started with the question, why did Jesus have to become a human being and suffer and die on the cross? And here's what we've done. We've established what made it necessary, the complete corruption of creation, including humanity, that was brought about by the disobedience of Adam and Eve. So that's why it was necessary for Jesus to come as a human being and suffer and die on the cross. And that is a corruption that's at the level of nature, not just behavior. We are not corrupt because we do corrupted things. We are corrupt because our nature is now corrupt. And we've seen that the solution to the corruption is the redemption of everything. First the children of God, then all of creation. And we've also seen that neither forgiveness or repentance alone can redeem creation from corruption. And so that brings us to the one thing that can resolve this problem, the incarnation. The incarnation should be the most glorious news of your life, and here's why. Because when you realize that the problem of sin is more than a behavioral issue, it's not simply I've done wrong. The problem of sin is a nature issue. By allowing sin, bringing sin into the world, the nature of all of creation was changed to corrupted. And so we have a nature problem. And knowing that we can do nothing to change our nature, we can at times through willpower change our behavior, but we can do nothing to change our nature. Means that the solution to this problem of a corrupted nature is totally out of our grasp. We cannot solve it. There's nothing 
I can reach for or grab a hold of or do or say or think that will change my nature. Listen to this in Titus 11, verse, uh, Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly patience and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God is Jesus and he has appeared and he is training us to live redeemed. He's leading us back to that mahod tov, that abundantly good creation by nature, not simply behavior. He's purifying us for himself as his own possession, which is exactly what Adam and Eve were before the fall. They were part of that Mahod, Tov, abundantly good creation. And so here's what we find in all of this then. Jesus took on a human body because it was human bodies that were corrupted. James Bryan Smith says this. This he did out of sheer love for us so that in his death all might die. We just sang that and the law of death would thereby be abolished. We just sang that. Thus, he would make death disappear as utterly as straw from fire. The corruption brought death, spiritual death and physical death, which means that death, both spiritual and physical, had to be conquered to undo the corruption. Jesus is now the master of death because he died and he lives. You and I could never do this for ourselves. And so knowing that apart from redemption through Christ, our only choice is to live in our corrupted nature and one day die should inflame our hearts and minds with a love so overwhelming towards Christ that we can barely think of anything else when we realize that we're starting from a place of total corruption because of what we have inherited as members of humanity through Adam and Eve, and we realize that there is no what that can fix that, only a who, and that that who can fix it in ways that we never could because it has to go to my nature, not my behavior, then why are we quiet when we think of Jesus? Why aren't we overwhelmed with desire and love for him knowing that he did the one thing for us that we could never do for ourselves that brought us all the way back to what we were made to be before any of this fell into corruption? See, the complete corruption brought by our sin and our inability to resolve our fallen nature and our need to be redeemed brings us super, super close to the deepest answer of this question. Why did Jesus have to become a human being and suffer and die on the cross? We're almost there. 
about this far away, there's one more thing we need to see to close the loop on this answer. And it's this. God is self-sacrificing. Because God, by nature, is self-sacrificing, he would have it no other way than to redeem us himself through the full giving of himself. It's his nature. It's his very nature. See, death was the only way to remove the corruption. And God, who is self-sacrificing, was always willing to suffer that death, knowing that no other sacrifice would be suitable. Listen to this quote. Complete corruption, which is the state of human beings after the fall, can only be reversed by the sacrifice of complete incorruption. Now do you see why Jesus had to become human and suffer and die? The author goes a little bit deeper. It was by surrendering to death the body which he had taken as an offering and sacrifice free from every stain that he abolished death for his human brothers and sisters by offering the equivalent. Now do you see why Jesus had to become human and suffer and die on a cross? In short, Jesus became as we were by nature, yet never lived into that fallen nature, so that we could become what he is by nature and could actually live into that divine nature. It's the exchange, the corruptible for the incorrupt. And so why did Jesus have to become a human being and suffer and die on the cross? because all of creation was corrupted by the sin of Adam and Eve. And that created a divine dilemma that cannot be resolved by forgiveness and repentance alone. And all of creation needs to be redeemed to its mahod tov state. Complete corruption can only be reversed by the sacrifice of complete incorruption. And God is the only one who is complete in corruption. And so through all of this, we actually become partakers of the divine nature and can actually now put off the old self, that fallen nature, and put on the new self, as Paul says in Colossians 3.10. And we're being made new through Christ, as Jesus says in Revelations 21.5. And we're undergoing a process of transformation and of sanctification by the Holy Spirit, that being renewed day by day that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4. And we're becoming more and more like our creator by nature because we've been freed from the corruption of this fallen nature. Smith writes this. He put an end to the law of death, which barred our way, and he made a new beginning of life for us by giving us the hope of resurrection. Jesus, you see, destroyed death. All of this is the deeper answer to the question, why did Jesus have to become human and suffer and die on the cross? Now, we can stay at the surface and go, well, I had sin that needed to be paid for, and that's true, which opens the gates to heaven for me. And we can stay near the surface and say, well, well there's a, a penalty that had to be paid, and that's true. Or we can go to the deepest place and go, wait a minute. 
Jesus had to become human and suffer and die on a cross so that the corruption that is me by nature is now redeemed and made totally incorruptible by nature because of Christ. And if we go to that place, what happens tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're looking at your day and you ask yourself, how am I gonna live today? If you go to that place, the answer to that question is, I'm gonna live like Christ. I'm gonna live different. I'm gonna live redeemed. I'm gonna live in my incorruptible nature that has been given to me, that I am now a partaker of through Jesus. See, that's why this matters. That's why it makes a difference. Because we all have moments where we will look in the mirror and we'll look dead into the eyes of that same old person that we haven't fully taken off yet. And we'll let the guy in the mirror convince us we have to live the same old way. When the reality is because of Christ and his sacrifice and his death and his resurrection, I am now a partaker of his nature, which is exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter 1. And now I can choose to live into my old nature, which is corrupted, or the new nature that's incorruptible. But it's on me. It's on me. Prior to Christ, it wasn't on us. We had one choice. Live into the death that Adam and Eve brought into the world. In Christ, we have two choices. I can live into the death that they brought into the world, or I can live into the life that he brought. And that's the response to the divine dilemma of the problem of sin corrupting all of creation. The response is what I choose. Do I choose Christ or do I choose me? Remember this though. The corruption came when Adam and Eve chose themselves. I can expect nothing else but corruption to follow when I choose me. That's the way it works. But because the incorruptible has been given for the corruptible, we at least now have a choice. And so, so there's the answer. But with that answer, I need to tell you one more thing. And it, it might feel like I'm kind of blindsiding you here. And if you feel that, I don't blame you. I would too. But here's the thing. It was a bit of a trick question to begin with. It really wasn't a sincere question to begin with. Here's why. Because Jesus didn't have to become a human being and suffer and die. He could have just labeled creation an epic fail. He could have looked around and said, oh my me, look at this. He could have just left us to our own devices. But because he is in his nature, good, trustworthy, generous, love and holy, all the things that we've seen through this series, The Good and Beautiful God. And when you take all of those things and you add self-sacrifice into it, he was never gonna leave us in this corrupted state. There's no way. He didn't have to come, but because of who he is by nature, he chose to come. That's why it's a bit of a trick question. He chose to take on our corrupted flesh. And he chose to live a perfect life. And he chose to suffer. And he chose to die on the cross. And he did it publicly so nobody could deny his death. And he rose publicly so that no one could deny his resurrection. See, the, the wording of that question, why did Jesus have to, 
Almost implies he was compelled. He wasn't compelled. There was no compulsion in this for him. It was totally a choice made out of love for you and me. No compulsion. He made himself rejectable and vulnerable for the sake of love for you and I. And I want to invite you into a practice this week. And that practice is simply this. I want to invite you to find some time to sit and read the Gospel of John. Just walk through it. And as you read it, think on the self-sacrificing nature of God in Christ. That self-sacrificing nature revealed in the choice of Jesus to become human and to suffer and to die on a cross. And as you think of his self-sacrificing nature, remember this, it's all about love. He did not have to come, but he chose to out of love for you and I. And so I wanna leave you with this quote from the good and beautiful God. To love someone and not be loved in return is a deep hurt, an excruciating ache. God experienced the pain of unrequited love. By becoming human, God opened himself to experience unrequited love. He made himself vulnerable to rejection. See, prior to the incarnation, God could not be rejected by us any more than an ant could reject my boot when I step on it. But once he became a person, he became rejectable. He became vulnerable. He became someone who could love and not be loved back. And so as you read the Gospel of John this week, may God's love for you never go unrequited. Father, we thank you for the reality that you are self-sacrificing and the truth that you put on flesh yourself made yourself nothing, made yourself vulnerable, made yourself rejectable out of love for us. And God, we know you didn't have to come. You didn't have to be human. You didn't have to suffer and die for us. We know that you chose that. And so, Father, let our response to your choosing to become like us be a response of love that opens us to live out of who you've made us to be and who you're making us to be. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.